This episode of the Managing Madrid podcast is brought to you by Managing Madrid Swag. Go to teespring.com slash store slash Managing Madrid Swag for all kinds of apparel designed by our very own cartoonist, Finn. You can get Managing Madrid uh, hoodies, stickers, posters, leggings, iPhone cases, tees, pillows, mugs, um, all designed by Finn and more designs coming your way. teespring.com slash stores slash Managing Madrid swag. We'll also link that in the show notes so you can just click on it directly and bookmark it that way. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to all of our wonderful patrons. Uh, As you know, we've come a long way. We started from nothing and there's 535 of you now and counting. You guys have been amazing to support the show. We want to give a specific shout out to our $10 plus patrons because you get a specific shout out on every podcast if you pledge $10 or more. So, Shout out to these amazing and wonderful $10 patrons. Sway Ayala, Sergio Monleon, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Catherine Fagundo, Gary Kohut, Peña Maridista, San Francisco Bay Area, Nicole Gant, Nick DeStefane, Raghav Reddy, Rasmus Sen Nielsen, Tarek Sveir, Emily Woods, Raghav Puluri, Mark Rady, Bjorn Salvador, Dan Berthy, Christian Gonzalez, Sajid Reyes, John Fernandez, Frederick Sundros, Christian Toft, Anas Alazawi, Sheikh Atiri, Red Bat, Luis Acosta. This one is tough, but I'm going to try my best. Oluwapamimo, Ola Donjoy, Leon Stavronakis, Theor Hackfile, Armin Gashi, Rafael Servilla, Eric Rogers, Sujaiwani, Nick Ribeiro, Shanmuha Manta, Willie Reed, Yahya Ibrahim, Said Mahad, Vicky Cohen, Zoran Bosnsic, Magnus Lext, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, Solomon Ortiz, Jeanette, Carolina Reyes, and Daniel Smith. I, I almost blacked out. I think that's definitely the longest list we've ever had and a lot of international flavor. Um, so sorry if I butchered your name, but I love you all. And, you know, on behalf of the entire managing Madrid crew thank you so much for your support you guys are freaking amazing all right without further ado this is the managing madrid podcast via the lead post game with myself Kion sobani and om arvind let's go Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. It is Sunday evening, November 4th. I am your host, Kian Sobani, and joining me is my co-host, Om Arvind, to talk about the weekend that was, uh, and namely, Santiago Solari's La Liga debut as a manager. Um, Om Arvind, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. Definitely doing better than I was when I did the uh, Patreon pod with Gabe because um, I'm not as sick. As I was, I'm on recovering, and it looks like Real Madrid might be recovering a little bit as well. Let's hope that uh, it's not a false start for both of us. Yeah, we already had to do a double take on the intro to this podcast because um, <laughs> I, I I'm also a bit I'm not a hundred percent. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get through this though. It's not we may not be on our A game, but we'll be. I think like us at like seventy five percent is still is still not bad. Um, we can we can carry the podcast, I think, and which we, we plan on doing. But I think what is keeping us going at this point is that the game against Valladolid was super interesting because I I would I wouldn't call it an emotion emotional roller coaster, but it was this weird thing where it was like 75, 80 minutes or whatever it was when Vinicius scored. Um, a really really labored football and the fans just almost like this acceptance of just Real Madrid is not good this year and that's what it really felt like and then 
somehow all of that and the groaning and the whistling and the underwhelming play and the lack of creativity in the final third and Valladolid hitting two crossbars and and despite not having the ball, I think actually having 12 shots and creating good chances, somehow all of that turned into a feel-good win. Is that fair to call it a feel-good win? I think the manner in which it happened, the way I think it so. was Vinicius who scored and then we, we got another one, I, it, it kind of did give us at least a positive feeling at the end of it. Yeah, the way I describe it is um, a movie that's that's fan service. Um, not a particularly great plot. If you know you do all the character analysis, all the key players involved didn't necessarily perform the way you wanted it to. But at the end of the day, it just gave you these things to hang, hang, hang on to. It gave you some fan service. And so you come away enjoying the movie a little more than you probably should have. But that's okay because there hasn't been a lot to enjoy so far this season. And, you know, the fan service, like you mentioned, was obviously Vinicius coming off the bench and essentially scoring the goal. Um, it, it officially counts as an own goal because Vinicius' shot was going to be off target. But but it, it was a good moment. It was a nice moment. For the first time this season, all of the fans were just happy about the same thing. Everyone agreed that that was a good moment. But um, if we're talking about the game as a whole... I wasn't too impressed, um, and I'm not again. I'm not that sure how much to take away from it, right? Because Stellari hasn't had a lot of time with the team. Um, I said that the tactics hadn't really changed that much, and then Sam from the managing Madrid account replied, "Well, Stellari never does anything with tactics anyway, so I don't know if I can look at this game and look at what Stellari's tactics were and say that's that's how it's going to be if he becomes a coach." A lot of a lot of questions in my mind, not too many answers. It was like that that Star Wars movie that was released a few years ago, the one where uh I mean I'm not even like a Star Wars geek, but like it was the movie was okay. But then at the end they they showed Darth Vader coming through and using the force. Oh you're gonna a bunch open you're gonna open a whole can of worms here. <laughs> um so it was it about- was like that. It was like we sat through that and then we're like, Oh, this is a great ending. That that's Wait. what this was. That was Rogue One. And in yeah. my opinion, honestly, completely off topic. I'm not sure anyone gives a shit. But um, in my opinion, the movie you're talking about is the best new Star Wars movie that's come out. And the other two are just fan But that's a whole different discussion. Um, I'm sure we just upset a lot of people. Um, um, the one before that was good. Force Awakens? Yes. Yeah, when I don't they, when like they that first one, relaunched I, it? See, I didn't like that movie. But I liked the one you were, you were, you were talking about with Darth Vader at the end. Is that is that just like your uh, hipster? Ch- was it like? Do you also like? Are you one of those people who say like Batman Begins was better than the Dark Knight? Just to have a different stance. No, Dark Knight. Dark Knight's my favorite movie ever. I just yeah. legitimately do not think The Force Awakens was that good. When we're talking about fan service, in my opinion, The Force Awakens is 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 the definition of that. But um, yeah, I, I see. We're not we're not on our A game here. Look at how the podcast is just derailed. You know um, what I saw? We're just we're on, just gonna talk about Star Wars for the rest of the pod. On uh, on Halloween night, you know what I saw? And I I hate horror movies. Like I really genuinely hate them, and I will never never watch them. But I got dragged into watching Halloween, um, and it was it was so much fun. I I never thought I would enjoy a horror movie that much. But anyways, that's a big digression. Um, <clears throat> are, are you into horror movies? No, no. I'm not. Um... Like the last horror movie I've I've watched in like how many ever years was Get Out. It was a good movie. It wasn't really horror. Yeah, um, that's different. Why I was able to stomach it, but yeah, I don't like horror movies. Like I don't I don't understand why uh, people watch stuff to get scared on purpose. But then again, you can ask why we watch Real Madrid this season, knowing that it's going to be a lot of pain. So I guess I guess people just. They just like to suffer in different ways. We can ask why they sit through this podcast listening to us. Because I have no <laughs> idea what, what, why. Um, I genuinely have no idea why people would actually sit through an hour of me talking about football. But people suffer in different ways. We all like to suffer. This is this is just how some people like to suffer. So I think, like, and it this season has really tested me as a Real Madrid fan. Um, I will never ever lose my fandom, and but. I'm always the glass half full type of 
fan and I always look for the good things and and mostly like even when I don't see any good things I will just circle back to my um my belief system that I have no right to complain because I'm a Real Madrid fan and I've enjoyed more success than most other football fans. This season has tested me in the sense like it's just there's a lot of underwhelming things happening like on the field like there's a lot of lethargy there's lackadaisical defending there's a lack of creativity there are a lot of legends who are not playing like themselves um, and it's just it's just it's not a great vibe and and this like the classical really really it was like it almost it almost became funny in a in a sick demented way where I was like it just it just looks so terrible and and helpless and Cristiano Ronaldo is not walking through the door and and there's like there's just so many things that it just seemed like Real Madrid weren't doing right and I thought we got so attached to those 20 minutes in the second half to the point where I I went on I was briefly on um this show called Viva La Liga for being for like five minutes and they asked me they're like do you do you do you think that Real Madrid can can take away like a moral victory because they played twenty minutes. We're like no, they can't. They 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 played twenty minutes of good football and got blown away in the other seventy. What what kind of moral victory is that? I mean, there's nothing to take away. And like, at some point, you can't keep blaming like hitting the post and all this. And before Vinicius scored, and to be fair, I think the second half from Real Madrid was better offensively. But I mean, Valladolid still had chances, like we saw. Um, it just. The crossing was was fine in a sense because I mean it was forty one crosses, which is an absurd number by the end of the game. The crosses from Regulon were actually good, and they were hitting their target, and that's part and why he got his five key passes because his his crosses were actually um, good and and well weighted and well timed and and well hit. It, it, the the headers were tame and the offense didn't seem. I, I just it really felt Real Madrid were too good to play the way they did, and the the lack of usage from Bale and Odrizola on the right flank was like there was a lot. Just it felt like the Real Madrid stars that should be carrying the team were just a bit too passive for me. Yeah, I I, I agree with all of that. Um, I I I don't know how much. Um, Solari's tactics again, like I mentioned, I'm not I'm not sure how much to take away from that. I'm not sure, you know, even if the the following analysis is going to be correct because I might be just seeing too much, seeing stuff that's not there because Solari hasn't had that much time. But um, so, Solari's tactics were looked like kind of like a budget version of Lopetegui's in the sense that there was still the the emphasis on considered deliberate possession fairly slow tempo um but the the structure in midfield was pretty much gone um Casemiro was back to moving in between the lines more um Modric and Kroos were swapping positions a lot not stuff you saw under Lopetegui if there was one thing that one distinct tactical feature under Lopetegui is that was super structured Casimir was pretty much always below Modric and Kroos. And if there was asymmetry, it's because Kroos was dropping deep. But there was always mechanisms to, to, to what we were doing. Whereas I saw very clearly versus Real Valladolid that that wasn't there. It was a lot freer. Um, the counter-pressing and pressing was gone pretty much completely. Um, if I was to pull up the um, stats, like we kind of allowed around... So the because via the lead we're going direct, um, we still limited them to a fair amount of low amount of passes per defensive action. But if you were to look at where our press was, where our counter press was, you're just not going to be able to find it in the game. So I think two of the most distinct features of Lopetegui's tactical structure was gone that game, and it was just replaced with more fluidity in midfield, uh, a medium block instead of a press. And then, I mean, there was still the, the, the fluidity and attack, which we saw under Lopetegui, but it just kind of felt that there weren't much instructions and there was just kind of the skeleton of what Lopetegui had and we went out and played with it. And I'm not saying that as a criticism of Solari. Um, I mean, you just feel how you want about the Castilla side. Um, we obviously, Solari hasn't had enough time to 
to bring it to his own tactical structure to the team. That's not to say that he will. That's not to say that I think he will. I just think that in this moment in time, it's difficult to tell whether this is how Solari's team is going to play. But what we saw, you know, for for good or bad in in the game on the weekend um, was was a budget version of Lopetegui's side and with a lot less structure and a lot less pressing. And personally, if we were to go on playing like that for the rest of the season, I wouldn't I wouldn't be in huge favor of that. Because I think when you don't have Ronaldo to bail you out, you need a more rigorous tackle structure, but but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, the the defensive structure is interesting because Solari, that's the, that was one of his constants. His, his, he had a good defensive record with Castilla, even when the team didn't play well. Um, and it was kind of similar to the way they defend, in that they don't really press high. And that, I'm not sure how, you, how it's going to translate well into the A-team, because I think... Especially in a game like against Valladolid, you just have to go and overrun them. Like I, I don't, the defensive shape, like they when they didn't press, they also played a high line, so they were compact. But it really like because Villarreal had time on the ball to build from the back, they also felt comfortable and and didn't really rush their passes. So they were able to like a few times they were able to get the ball to Enes Unal and in a, in a dangerous position with just like a slower pace build up. Everything changed for me in the second half, and part of the reason was because Real Madrid started winning the ball high up the pitch a bit better, and Kroos and Isco both were winning the ball a bit better in the second half. Um, but I mean, interesting enough, it's, I don't think they defended perfectly by any means because even in the second half, the counterattack wasn't great. And there's an interesting quote, actually, from uh, uh, Valladolid's manager, Sergio Gonzalez, after the game because he... He was talking about how Valladolid, you know, hit the bar twice, how they got a few chances in the second half, even on the counter. Um, and this also coincided with, lest we forget, that's when Solari took Casemiro out. We should take, we should talk about his subs in a second. But when he took out Casemiro out, there was, a, there were a few moments where you look at like that would have been Casemiro tracking that run where Valladolid got a chance from. Anyway, Sergio Gonzalez said after the game, we knew that once you get past Madrid's initial press with two or three passes, you would get time to move the ball around and play your football. I think, I, I'm pretty sure Pochettino said something similar to this after they beat us last season, in that it, it only takes a couple of passes to break break through our team. Um, and that was a recurring, very like nightmarish trend last season. Whereas like, oh, Real Madrid flood the box and... They're expecting a cross that never comes, or it gets cleared. And now they're now the opposition gets one or two passes in the run through on goal. That stuff, um, I don't. I don't think Real Madrid defended that perfectly by any means. But you know, they held on to the clean, clean sheet. Great, maybe a bit of luck and whatever. But um, I think they, I think they made it easier than for Valladolid than it should have been, both offensively and defensively. Yeah. Um... That's that's the thing, right? Like, there's one positive I was to take away from what Lopetegui was bringing. It would have been that our pressing was just a whole lot better um, because that was a huge issue last season. And I wonder how... I wonder how it will... those Will those problems resurface? Um, or will Solari's more passive... Um, rather successful defensive structure from Castilla translate well to the first team. I don't know, but it's been a big issue we've had for a while. With Zidane, the pressing has always been inconsistent. Um, in 2016-17, we definitely had our moments. Probably the best example being that Copa del Rey first leg against Sevilla, I think in the round of 16, where some of the best pressing I've ever seen from any team, but it was either that or what we saw versus Tottenham in 2017-18. So that would be an interesting thing to look at going forward. You know, whether Solari stays or not and oversees that, I don't know. But I think it's fair to say that for the time being, we're not going to see a whole lot of pressing. I just I just don't think that's the type of coach Solari is. And um, just, yeah, another comment to make about this game is that we hit, the, they hit, Vitalid hit the bar twice. Um, probably were unlucky. You know, on two more occasions, I think, like, late 30 minutes, I think, Antonito and Unal had two very good shots. 
And then we end up scoring off a deflected own goal. And, you know, I don't want to take credit away from Vinicius. He did well. But you just look at, like, a, a, a series of luck that you just felt Lopetegui never got. You know, I'm not trying to take away um, responsibility for some of the results we had. We've, we've talked about in length at what we think Lopetegui's at fault for. But you just cannot deny that he just hardly got any luck at all. And he's out and Solari comes in for his first La Liga game and we just get this series of, of, of good fortune. And it almost felt like Zidane's black magic was back. And I mean, I don't know what to say, right? Like I, I, I can't be angry, obviously, because it's my team winning. But I just frustrated that, that Lopetegui wasn't able to get that to help smooth over some of the issues before he could find an improvement. Instead, he got no luck whatsoever. He kept making a series of mistakes that compounded upon that the players didn't play well. And it all just kind of was snowballed from there. And then we got the luck back all of a sudden. So I, I guess that's just how it is with football. I'll I'll take that luck any any like even when when Vinicius scored I was like I don't I don't know how that ball went in but I'll take it. It, it this the freakish thing about this is that you know maybe the black magic comes from failed Castilla stints. It's like this, <laughs> but it, the freakish thing about it was that it was like almost a carbon copy of so much of Castilla this season. Whereas like we a lot of people who haven't watched Castilla will attach this this thing to this idea that, oh, Solari has done, has improved as a manager because it's his third season and Castilla are great this season. But the context is they've been a bit better, but Vinicius has single-handedly won a, a ton of points. And I, and, I, and I was looking at this, I was like, wow, this is like eerily similar. The team doesn't play well and Vinicius Jr. bails the team out with just some... Uh, and, and this kind of now brings unearths this an entirely different subject about Vinicius and what what his goal represented because um, it wasn't to me so much like because I saw you know other people post on Twitter like hey let's let's pump the brakes he scored a deflected goal and whatever he got lucky yeah that's true and I think you and I have been um, flag bearers of the you know let's not overhype Vinicius train but what I liked about that play. And what it represented was that the the balls to go through and dribble through a couple people that didn't exist from anyone in this game. And like, and we're, we'll get to Bale because there's there's questions about him. But that's what we wanted from Bale is like just go through. Maybe you'll lose the ball. I don't know. But just you have the ability to when when you can't generate chances to carve out opportunities that no one else can. And that's what Vinicius to me represented in that moment is like and and any Castilla game he comes in just being there popping up in goal scoring chances whether it's with movement or being able to generate shots that you know maybe are not high high percentage but for him like it, it creates havoc it creates danger that incisiveness to me was important yeah I mean I think that's the key thing um the way you phrased the entire discussion around Vinicius and other players, because, right, I think it's correct to give credit to Vinicius for coming on and, and creating that goal, even though it's not his goal, the shot is off target, whatever. What he gave us was this bravery, this incisiveness, this, this fearlessness to drive at defenders and create something. So when the tactics aren't on, when... You know, you feel like the opposition is getting chances and the flow just isn't there. That's when you need someone to step up and just take the game by the scruff of its neck and do something. Now, what I think is people are taking it too far is in saying that Benicis is the only guy that can provide that to us. And and that gets to a neck, another level of hype, which is he should replace Benzema, he should replace Asensio, he should replace Bale. Vinicius should be starting ahead of all of them. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know if that's really worth responding to because something's just too ridiculous. But you said it right, Keon, right? Like you wanted Bale to do that. It's not that we don't have players who who can do who can't do that. It's just that they haven't. Asensio can do that. Isco can do that. Gareth Bale of all people can definitely do that. It's just that they haven't. And that's why Vinicius came on and, and it looks so different and it really gave us something to hold on to. But 
yeah, it's it's about those players finding that. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to say. Like desire, hunger, ability. That's that's something we need to see from Bale most of all because he is the leader of this attack. Now he has the ability. Um, he he should have the hunger, right? He should have desire. He should have the mentality. We've seen it before. With with the absence of Ronaldo, we need someone who can do something like that, and it has to be Bale and. I haven't seen it as much as I would like this season, and that's why Vinicius came on and made such an impact. The best way I can kind of put it into words with Bale, what's going on with him, it's like sometimes I think he just forgets how who he is and how good he is. And like we saw in this game, and it's, it's not uncommon that Real Madrid channel everything through the left flank. So whether East goes out there, or it's just Cruz and Marcelo, or in this particular game, it was it was Cruz, Regulion, and Asensio, and Benzema drifting out wide a lot. It everything goes to the left. But what I think Lopetegui did really well at the beginning of the season was hitting those crossfield switches to Carvajal or whoever mm-hmm. or Bale, mm-hmm. um, and that's one thing I think that was like underrated and under discussed is like what happened to that even under Lopetegui like after the Roma game a lot of the good things we saw from the team disappeared and we, it was kind of inexplicable like because we got excited for all these things I don't know if the scattering report came out or what but it just a lot of that good stuff just wasn't there anymore after that game um, in this in this game it was like just shocking to me how little we use Odriozola and Bale two of the fastest players in the world who like if you can hit them on the flanks or just play some one twos or whatever, just you can get in really good positions. And Bale, it was just the whole time pop up as an outlet, show for Odriozola, gets the ball deep like near the halfway line, and just passes it towards Monitor Cruz internally or back to um, Nacho or someone. That it was, it's just like anybody can do that. What? But Gareth can do other things that he should be doing out there. That that part. It it seemed like Alpha Bale wasn't hasn't been out in a few games now. Um, I think Asensio may have been unlucky to not get an assist early. He had that like really brilliant pass to Benzema to start the game. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if like there's if we if there's any other notes Om you want to go through before we get to the questions, which we'll touch on a lot. But um, I mean. I just got this strange kind of sentiment that like people really enjoyed Odriozola's performance. Maybe it was just a couple of people, but I don't really understand that. I thought he was brilliant in the Copa del Rey game yeah. versus Melia. I, I I said he was my man of the match in my immediate reaction, but he just wasn't very good against Valladolid. And I mean, you mentioned that the switches weren't there. We weren't really, really taking advantage of his pace, but when he did have the ball... He was losing offensive duels. He wasn't re- really creating as much. And, you know, I'm only bringing this up because I, I just got the impression that people thought he played well. I mean, I don't think this doesn't do anything to my view of what his potential is. I think his potential is a world-class attacking right back. And he's going to have games like this. I, would, I just thought it was strange that some people came away from this and they're like, oh, Drio Zola is our guy. I mean, sure, he should be in the absence of Carvajal. But this this isn't the game that, that proves that, right? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I didn't see um, Odriozola as a standout in this one either. Um, and there was also like a couple of occasions where he got in good positions to cross, and he should have like cut it back for 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 an open player to shoot. But he would, you know, kind of cross it in, and that was a bit uncharacteristic from him. I don't. I don't think this was a standout game from him. Um, I if we kind of just. Um, we talk, oh, I wanted to say something about Bale was that, um, to his credit, I think when Solari switched him and Asensio, like, kind of, kind of swapped flanks at halftime, Bale looked a bit better. And, like, I would say mm-hmm. also, like, towards, like, the half-hour mark of the first half, he started to try to get into better positions. And he did have a header early on far post, which, which it was, it was, it was one that he couldn't really redirect on target. But I thought he did at least... Mm-hmm grow into the game a little bit so it might be unfair to label him as his completely passive um blob which he wasn't but he just we, we just expect so much from him i think um the casemiro sub was interesting to me in a sense that in a vacuum if you need a goal it makes sense to take casemiro out. i thought it was interesting in this particular case to take him out um and not someone else was that 
somehow he as a defensive anchor and he has been playing that role this season like without venturing too too far up the pitch he he was our most dangerous player offensively somehow like he had when he came off he had four shots i think and that was the most of anyone on the on the entire field even like after 90 minutes even though he played like half hour less than most people um, he had this header at the far post that was unlucky not to go, and he had a couple of long-distance shots that really tested the keeper. It was interesting to me that, you know, he came out. We kind mm. of lose at least some of that, and then and then also suffered a bit on the counterattack. He was, he, was a, he was a big threat on set pieces, and honestly, yeah. that's how we were creating a lot of our relevant chances um, before we got the Vinicius one and the penalty. Um I mean, I, I mean, to, to be honest, like, I wouldn't mind necessarily losing that for better offensive flow, but um, questionable to take him off um, from a defensive perspective if you're not going to counter-press. So if you think about how teams that lack, let's say, Casemiro Steel, Casemiro's physicality, his defensive noose um, in midfield, and you look at, say, Manchester City, how is it that Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva are playing in midfield. I mean, Fernandinho is a proper defensive midfielder, but he doesn't have, at least at this this stage of his career, he doesn't have the legs that Casemiro has. He can't cover nearly as much ground. How is it that Manchester City have the best defensive record in the league? Well, they counter-press really, really well. When the ball is lost, they press from the front. Everyone moves in unison. It's tactics, essentially, and it's team-wide work on the defensive end. And so Solari removes the counter press and then decides to then take off the only real defensive midfielder we have and not replace him with the, the only other backup we have, Marcos Llorente and Pudisco on. Then we just become more vulnerable in transition because we're not following the playbook that is used for teams that that don't have defensive personnel in midfield. So that's why it's questionable for me. If we were going to keep the counter press be really well structured and defend from the front. It's not such a huge deal, in my opinion. But you, you, you're taking more risks when you take Casemiro off, and you don't do that. And I think we saw some of that with the counterattacks. I mean, at the end of the day, I thought it was a net positive, but I don't think it was necessarily the decision that drove us to victory. I think bringing Vinicius on obviously was the one that helped us get that goal. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I don't feel one way or the other about it in the context of this game, but I think it is a good a good tactical conundrum to think about in the future because I can definitely see that happening, you know, in, in matches that, um, in, in future matches, and it could end up costing us more if we if we don't look to protect ourselves the right way when Casemiro's not on the pitch. Um, Patreon.com slash Managing Madrid is where you go to pledge. If you enjoy the show, you want to hear our, our, our mid-movie our, our review, movie reviews and our <laughs> tangents and, and whatever else we talk about in this podcast. You like it, you want to support it, patreon.com slash managingmadrid. You do actually get cool things and cool value, though. Um, namely, you get guaranteed responses to your questions. You can actually join us on the show. You can get me to write an article of your choice. Um, so go check it out. Here's our first patron question. It's from Sheikh Hatiri. He says, given the seven-point gap, which is not that bad, what are the odds of us winning the league? We're still the second favorite, according to some of the the betting sites I've checked. Look, I don't think people understand it this season, um, mainly because Real Madrid and Barcelona haven't been too impressive. But La Liga is just so much better this year. We say this every season, and it's true. Like we're not lying. La Liga just somehow finds a way to become more competitive, you know, higher quality every single season. And this season, virtually every single team is competitive in some way, except the bottom three that you essentially see at the moment. Yeah. The difference... Any, yeah. Uh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was just going to finish up by saying that, yeah, I mean, seven points isn't a lot. Shea, you're right, because Barcelona are going to drop a lot of points. And if, somehow, if we can get our act together, I still were very much in the running for the league. But that's the question, right? It's... It's not so much will Barcelona drop points. Is it, is it? It's the question that can we get our act together? Can 
people start performing? Can we get the right tactics in? You know, who is our coach going to be? It's it's more about stuff to worry on our end because I think opportunities will present itself. Like this whole beginning of the La Liga season was an opportunity to grab the league by the scruff of the neck and, and, and be in dominant position. And we've thrown those opportunities away. In my opinion, they'll keep coming. And it's just it's just about what we do. I My issue is like, I agree that Barcelona also haven't looked great. My issue is that the biggest difference between us and them is that they find a way we don't. Mm-hmm. So like, I own, they have an aura about them is that no matter how poorly they play, regardless of messes on the pitch or not, they find a way. Um, and we just haven't had that consistently over the years. Like we had it in sixteen, seventeen, and and that was a really fun year. But we haven't really had it consistently over the years. Um, and I mean, you just you look at we the fact that we have four losses at this stage is staggering. Really, like if you think about it, four losses in our first eleven games is insane. Um, the fact that we just haven't been able to score goals is crazy. Like. We've scored less goals in Levante. We've scored less goals in Celta Vigo, who are in eleventh <laughs> place. It's, it's. I mean, sure, Barcelona may drop points, but I, I also don't have much faith in them dropping points. It's just that's my pessimism about this because Barcelona take the league. They approach the league way better than we do generally, and uh, I think I think they will. I mean, they have three losses. Oh wait, no, they don't have no, three they losses. Have three draws, wrong, one loss. I'm looking at the wrong column. They have three draws, one loss. My bad. My yeah. bad. Um, but I mean, I think they will. Just I mean, it's not gonna be obviously I think it'll stabilize a little bit. I don't think it'll be as much as we've seen. But Barcelona are gonna definitely drop seven points or more over over this over the rest of the season. Um because it, it it's tight. <laughs> And if you want to look at their invincible season last last year, they overperformed by a lot. If you if you want to take some value from expected points, is that Barcelona would have still won the league, but they would have won the league by one or two points, not by the huge margin that they did. And I mean, the eye test the eye test holds that theory up because you and I both watched a lot of Barcelona last season. We kept coming away with how are they winning, right? I. I, I yeah. think they do have. I think they do have a belief. I, I think they have a culture with their current players, especially with guys like Messi, Piquet, so so on, that will be able to grind out results and get quote unquote undeserved wins. Not I don't like that term, but it, it serves its purpose in this case. But I don't think it'll be anything crazy like last season because that wasn't just you know the ability to to win ugly. That was a hell of a lot of luck, and. To see that continue for the second season or go at the same way, I don't see it happening. If it doesn't happen like that, I still think we got a shot. But I don't know how confident I am about our ability to get it together fast enough to make a real challenge. Adrian Rios says, So we've now seen Bale fall out of favor with Ancelotti and Zidane for not being the center of attack and falling behind Isco in the lineup. We saw him underperform with Lopetegui, and today he refused to shake Solari's hand after being subbed out for a horrendous performance. When can we admit that he just isn't a player we should build a team around, and he no longer justifies his wage or his constant diva-like attitude with various coaches? Them fighting words right there. But um, I, I, so I've gone back and looked at this Solari incident a few times, and I, it's it. it I wouldn't say overblown because I actually haven't really seen anybody talking about it. It's it hasn't. I mean, they, I've seen a people, but it's not over. It's not like on the front page of everything. It's not a huge deal. Um, I I will brush that off as not much because Solari didn't extend his hand either, and they were kind of not within like I would. They were they were not like right next to each other either, like within arm's reach. But you know, I'm not saying they. Not, I'm not <laughs> saying there was a physical force stopping them from high fiving, but like I, you know, it's not a big deal to me. But I agree with the performance. But the question is, is he someone you can build your team around? It, I think, is a valid question. So, okay. So, first of all, just to quickly get that shaking hand thing out of the way, let's say Bale did, right? Like, he didn't shake his hand when Solar extended it. Who cares? Like, I mean, not that I, I would honestly prefer it if all players had the presence of mind to put away whatever happened on the pitch when they're walking out to, you know, give the high five and sit down. But 
it, it's just a fact that like pretty much every player is like this. Ronaldo has had several moments like this. Um, I mean, you can look at any player. You can even look at guys like Hazard who have come off and, and weren't happy at something and they decided to shake the hand. Messi has even just flat out refused to be substituted. You know, something somehow we just never talk about under Luis Enrique. Um, you know, I guess you could say this, you have to have the ability to back up that kind of attitude. I mean, it's it's just a thing players do, right? They're unhappy in the moment and they're just insanely competitive and they don't like it. And, you know, it, it literally doesn't matter. I mean, managers just don't see it to keep calm in the dressing room. It just generally doesn't. So, I mean, I wouldn't worry about that. That's just me. And then as to your more relevant question as to whether we can build a team around him, I mean... It depends on which bail you're getting, right? If we're if we're assuming bail is still the same bail, and honestly, I don't think it's it's very logical to look at what the small sample size from this season and say, nope, bail's trash, right? He's never coming back because most people have been bad this season, but I don't think any of us believes that this is it. Audrey's just never going to be world class again. Kroos never going to be world class again. Sergio Ramos will never give us a big good a good moment again. It just doesn't seem reasonable to say. So let's look at the couple of times when we have tried to build a team around him. So you could go back to Spurs. Looks like that was a pretty massive success. And then you look at the Benitez era, you know, for that brief period where Bale was made a focal point at the center of the team. Bale had his most productive season ever. He was averaged in goal every 90 minutes. When Ronaldo was out for a period at the end of La Liga, Bale carried us on his back. And kept us in the race after we defeated Barcelona. I think there was like three three games. I think it was against like Viacano or something. I can't remember that. You know, he scored he scored goals to keep us in it. So yeah, if if we think we still have the same bill, and he's absolutely a player we can build the team around. It's a question of whether you think his form is going to come back, and well, I think it will. But it's hard to say because the factors for for top player performances aren't exactly there at the moment. Like the conditions just don't seem right for it. We, especially at the moment, we need either to confirm Solari or find someone else and bring them um, bring them in quickly so we can reestablish a platform for the guys to go out there and, and, and perform again. But I don't know, I just I just think it's way too reactionary to say that this is it with Bill, like, you know, with Diva like attitude, he can't take us places anymore that's it he's out well i think that depend really always depends on when you ask a question like this if you ask us this question after the champions league final our, our answer is probably gonna be different if you ask us this, this question after the game against roma where we like it really felt like he was stepping up in the absence of ronaldo or, you know it's gonna be different you ask us this when he's in a slump albeit a very legitimate like how many how many games would you say he's a slump five six um, it's his, I think it's his biggest drought as a Real Madrid player, actually, like after like a consecutive string of games. Right, but so I, I think that's totally valid, right? I'm not at all, just to get on the record, I'm not at all denying that Bale has, hasn't lived up to expectations, but if you look at it within the context of the team, no one has. And I'm not saying that's a defense, but it says something about where the team is sure. now. So if, yeah, you, if you're, you're going to if you're going to use this bad run of form to say that Bale is not the guy anymore... You know, we should move away from him. Then, by extension, you're saying that for a ton of other players in the squad. And if you're okay with that logic, fine. I just just want to be clear on how that logic works and what you're saying. Because I've seen plenty of people say, Kroos, we, we got a question in the last part, right? Kroos, Modric, Benzema, Bale, they all need to be out. But that is essentially what you're saying if you are making the argument that Bale isn't who he is anymore because of the recent form. Now, if you're right. saying... This is how Bale has always been. I thought he's played like this since he's he's come to Real Madrid. That's a different argument entirely. You're wrong, but that's a diff- that's something else entirely. So I just want to be clear about what we're saying here, what that logic entails. Right now, and also the definition of what is what does it mean to build your team around someone? Because this is something that kind of only exists in, in in our heads sometimes. Whereas, like when you're building a team, it's not like oh, this is my player. Mm-hmm. Every piece goes around him. It, it it doesn't always work like that unless you are Cristiano Ronaldo, who is like one of the two best players of all time. But if you, but I guess if you could rephrase the question, is like, would you would you build around Kroos? Would you build around Modric? Would you build around Marcelo? What does that really mean? You want all of those players in your, players in your team. I think Bale fits that description. But I think, um, you know, it, maybe is he the guy that 
basically is your MVP in a post-Ronaldo era. Maybe, maybe not. And I, I don't know if he is because if to build your team around someone, you you might be... I don't know if it's someone like Bale who can consistently get, get you to where you need to and, and carry you. But the, I also think that might be unfair to him because, you know, he scored Champions League final goals. He's... I think you mentioned that you know there was a period where he where Ronaldo was out a couple seasons ago and he stepped up in a few games and was scoring. It, it's kind of this weird question to answer at, at this stage of his career. But my question is, how much can we see the old Gareth Bale consistently? Because you po- you posted on Twitter this video where, um, of his Tottenham days, whereas where I don't know what game oh it was against Inter right. Where it was like the it was uh, yeah, yeah, it was highlights of like Tottenham winning I think three one correct me if I'm wrong I can't yeah, it was it was, a, it was the group stage game it wasn't the famous knockout I mean well did they face in knockouts or was it just group stage I whatever think I think was it was just the, group stage they yeah, was home and away Bale, this wasn't the one where Bale scored the hat trick but he had like two assists or whatever he still played brilliantly but so in one of the clips or two of the clips he he has the ball deep like at the halfway line or in his own half. And he just sprints, not necessarily even on a counterattack. It's like there's defenders in front of him. He just dribbles past them like they're not even there. I, I can't remember the last time Bale did that at Real Madrid. And and I don't I don't buy the fact that, you know, there's another question. Um, actually, I'm going to read that question right now because it ties in. Mm-hmm. Sajid Reyes says, um, why does it feel like Benzema somehow blackmails every new coach of Real Madrid into starting him since he's no stranger to blackmail? LOL. Yet again, he was hopeless. I tuned into the match after a few minutes with my father-in-law, who's not such a big football fan, and he was laughing and saying that Benzema missed a sitter with three crying laughing emojis. How embarrassing. It somehow feels like the only way to bench him is to hire Deschamps. Okay, so... And then wait, now wait, wait, hold is, up, hold up, hold uh, up, hold up. Please. Real please. quick, real quick. What what sitter did Benzema miss versus Bayern the league? As far as I'm aware, he had one header, right? Which was by no means, or did he have a header or not? He definitely had a header because a bunch of people had headers. Right. No, it was no means, easy. you know, uh, easy. And I'm looking through the XG, and I, I, I think I think that's just right. The normal any any chance Benzema misses is a sitter, but I just wanted to quickly because I'm surprised I didn't notice that. But yeah, I don't think it's there. Anyway, go on, go on. Okay. I just wanted to. No, that's fair. That. Uh, so this, but this second part of the question or comment is what we're talking about now. So Sajid says also since everyone is criticizing Bale at the moment and talking about his backward passing, I'll repeat this: against a low block, he is useless in a deep position because he doesn't get space to make his runs on the flank, and since he's not the most nimble player with his feet, that's why you see him bring the ball to his left foot when pressed, and he ends up passing sideways uh, slash backwards. This is why he needs to play up front against teams that park the bus, get into the box, use his pace, and run off the shoulder up defense, etc. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't buy it. It, it. There are plenty of examples we've seen um, where they're even in the low blocks and this Valladolid game, like if you can go through and look at the first half when he's on the right and he has those options to either pass it backwards or or be more surgical, he can get by those players that are in front of him. I have no doubt in my mind. There is enough space. He has enough pace. He can do a little give and go without orders. There are so many options he could do instead of passing Mm -hmm. it backwards. In those Tottenham clips, that's what he did. It's like, there was no space. He would just go and he would dribble past. And like that's the kind of danger that he could create. Um, I also think that his um, his ability in tight spaces and without space is underrated. And, and first of all, he does a lot of great defensive work. Um, but but second of all, uh, I, I, I started to notice an improvement in his ability in tight spaces in the 16-17 season where I thought, I thought it really wasn't an issue anymore. And I think if we're still carrying that narrative, it's just kind of like the stereotype type that he's carried with him, I think. Right. And I mean, we need to realize that like 75% of the teams we play, play in deep blocks. Like I, I, that's just the nature of being one of the best teams in the world or having that status, at least if maybe we don't have the form at the moment is teams, you know, even if they, if they press us and, and we work our way the half, they're always settling into a deep block to, to prevent us from finding space. And 
when you look at it like that, you'd have to think that Bale doesn't score in like 75% of our matches, but no, like that, that's just not the case, right? It doesn't make any sense once you realize that basically every team is, is, is using that against us and Bale finds a way. And I, this idea that Bale needs to be a striker, I just keep seeing this all the time. And we saw it. We saw it last season. Sedan played Bale as a striker a ton of times, like eight, nine times. It just wasn't good. He's not a striker. I, I mean, I can I can bring that article back up. I wrote comparing his form. I mean, I I took note of, of every single position he played, um, uh, relating up to the point when like Bale was pretty much benched and Sedan wanted to bring the diamond back, and it's very very clear statistically by the eye test. Bale doesn't know how to play as a striker. That doesn't surprise me. And 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 this idea that he can only run off the shoulder of the defender playing as a striker doesn't make any sense because at the beginning of the season, like you mentioned, Keong, and we had those switches of play, Bale was running off the shoulder of the defenders. One of the goals he scored this season was him running off the shoulder of the defense, one versus one with the keeper he finished. Arguably, being a striker in, in this Real Madrid system gives you less of a chance to do that, right? Like, why does Benzema keep coming deep? Because the nature of our midfield requires the striker to play the role of a midfielder a little bit, to help circulate ball upfield, and the wingers are the ones that run over the top. So I just I just don't buy a lot of the narratives flying fly around the bail. Like you mentioned that he, he can't work in tight spaces, that he's not good against deep blocks, despite us almost always playing against deep blocks and Bale scoring tons of goals against them. The fact that Bale needs to play as a striker, like I just don't buy it. And it just keeps coming back every time Bale has a bad spell of form. And I'm just wondering when we're going to like evolve our discussion away from like the same things we just keep discussing over and over again well you 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 wrote you wrote something about this last season i remember within like a week or two i also wrote about this um for 442 and uh, i'm just going back and just reading what i unearthed at that time and by the time I wrote it last season, because I was like, curious, like really what is what is the data here? Because the eye test told us that Bale is just not, not that he wasn't good as a striker, but it's not his game. He Because he's capable of doing so much more and influencing so many things on the pitch that we liked him from a deeper position. And that's and it's it's not that he can't create from deep. Like if you look at his Tottenham goals and assists, a lot of it starts from deep because he's, he, he's, he's a good ball carrier in transition. Um, or even wants to shoot from range or whatever. Uh, at the time I wrote the article, he had 22 appearances. 11 of those games, so exactly half, Bale was a striker. Um, and uh, <laughs> and all of he didn't score in any of them. He scored 10 goals in those 22 games, and they were all from the wing. So it, it's it, that to me was like just really telling. It was that he, his offense actually doesn't get hindered if he plays from a deeper position at all. He can because he can affect the game more than one way. And I think that was the biggest eye-opening thing to me is that he played 22 games. He scored 12 goals. All 12 goals came when he was on the wing, and he went goalless in the other 10 when he was a striker. Um, right, and yeah. I mean, I don't think we appreciate how hard of a role a striker is. Like, I think we. I mean, some fans, some fan bases are more guilty of this at most, right? Than more, most, well, ugh, can't speak today, but some some fan bases <laughs> are more guilty than most is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this idea that like if you're a striker or if you're just a penalty box poacher, it's, that's all you do. You just sit in the box or you just run off the shoulder of the defender and you score easy goals. There's so much more to it than that, right? You have to occupy the defense if you're not going to play as more of a false nine type. And in Real Madrid, for a long time now, we've had someone move into midfield because of the nature of our own midfield structures. So if you're going to play up top for us, you need to be making a lot of clever movements. Not only do you need to occupy the center back, but you need to recognize when you need to come deep to help facilitate play forward. You know, when you're when you're progressing up the field, you need to move in the half spaces to support each wing. And then when you're in the box, you have to judge how you're going to approach the box in open view of all the central defenders. You don't have the benefit of arriving from the blind side from the wing, but then find a way to get in the box to score. This is a position 
that requires a lot of tactical intelligence. It requires a lot of positional experience. And, you know, it, it requires you to be on your game 100% to be able to make an impact. And it's just very, very different from playing anywhere else. You, you, but you're almost always playing with your back to goal. So then to just expect Bale, who I think is correct to say that he thrives in space at running at defenders when, when he has a couple yards in front of him, to then go and play this role that he's never played before and just understand how to do all of that and make an impact, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. Like If you think that being, playing as a striker just means running off the top, over-the-shoulder defenders and being in the box to score tackles, it's so much more than that. And so... I guess if you really wanted to spend the time, you could train Bale for months on months to, to get used to this position. But I just don't see what the point is. He provides you with a lot of production from the wing. It, just play him there. Like I, I, I don't understand the validity of the Bale as a striker discussion. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, the two more patron questions. First one is from Aluwapamimo. Ola Dunjoy. I really hope I didn't butcher that too badly. Um, he says, I am highly disappointed with this game, and I think I've come to a very harsh, but in my belief, true conclusion. We need to buy new players. Bale is not what he used to be. Um, his drive, incisiveness, and all that um, isn't there anymore. Lucas is not the cut. Is just not the cut. Asensio is good, but he needs pure competition. He's too complacent and relaxed and thinks he has nothing to prove. Kroos and Modric don't look interested anymore. I don't think it's formation or tactics. Madrid players just don't want to work anymore. The last two seasons we had defensive mistakes, but when it came to it, we worked hard in attack and made sure we just scored more goals. None of our midfielders have belief. They always play the easiest pass and not the difficult passes. I could count how many passing, how many passing opportunities we had in this game that we just didn't take because they preferred the easier one. I think Ronaldo didn't just affect the scoring, but the sheer determination to not give up. Players knew they had to act straight and play at their best to keep up with Ronaldo, and now he's gone and they don't even care. Like, come on, we've seen Midriff... Um, uh, I don't know, the, the, I think there's a typo here. <laughs> I don't even know how to do this part. Uh, okay, fast forward. Uh, we need Hazard, Mbappe, slash Neymar, slash Icardi. Pogba slash Ericsson. We need new players that want to improve themselves and not these players that just don't give a fuck anymore. Um, it's very sad, to be honest. What do you think? A lot there. Um, so, I mean, I the, the basic premise is that we need an injection and, and certain players either complacent or they, they're past it and, you know, Ronaldo was a big loss. And then a list of players that we should buy. I don't know if there's like there's there's really uh, there's too many flaws in this argument. I think I think signings would be welcome, but I, I mean I, I don't know if there's anything new to add here in particular. But I'd be curious to know what you think on. Um, yeah, so I mean, most of this we've addressed. I I think we'd be doing a disservice to the people listening if we just repeated all of that. Um, some new things to touch on the Ronaldo bits about him keeping us at a certain standard, I don't think is entirely incorrect because um, I, I, I talked to a couple of people um, on Twitter, a couple, you know, the knowledgeable tacticians, you know, whatever, people who watched the league a lot. And there was this sense, especially people who watched the live games, I should specify. So they got to see the whole, and Kian, you might want to jump in on this because you've watched a, lot, a fair amount of live games now. So when people see the whole pre-match stuff and the, and the, and the training beforehand, they talked about how in the last couple of seasons, Ronaldo would play a big, big role, especially on Champions League nights or, or before Classicals or whatever, of getting the whole team pumped, of just giving the sense that tonight was going to be our night because first of all, I'm going to be on fire. And second of all, all of you better be up to my level. And there, you know, there, there's those highlights. Like if you go to YouTube highlights of Ronaldo versus X team and X match, there's always these pre-match highlights of Ronaldo like pumping his fist and clapping his hands. And just when you watch that, you feel yourself as a fan getting pumped up. You're like, oh yeah, shit's going down right now. And I kind of feel like we lost that a little bit because there was always the sense that Ramos was the captain. You know, he always gave us a source of inspiration, especially off the field. But when it came to 
the field and when it came to our attack, Ronaldo was the leader. So I don't think it's wrong to say that there's a certain void left when he leaves because of how he was just able to lift the team, whether through sheer inspiration or his body language. Um, and I don't know if I can ever be replaced. I think that's just something we're going to have to accept because I don't know too many players in world football who are like that. And then to address when he has none, and, but yeah. Yeah. So to, to, um, so, yeah, to, to talk about Hazard, Mbappe, Neymar, Icardi, Pogba, Eriksen, I mean, I'd love to, you know, when whenever I, I, I whip open FIFA, I make sure to sign all of these players. But um, I don't know how many are realistic. Um, Mbappe, I don't know anyone who says no to him, probably not coming anytime soon. Hazard, most likely, but we'll see. Um, Neymar, who knows? Pogba, Eriksen, I don't, I don't know about that. Icardi, hey, I mean, a lot of dream signings that just may never materialize. Right? We also have to think about how realistic it is. And then I just want to ask you, Keon, whether you noticed what I was talking about, like pre pre game, if you saw like Ronaldo kind of like pumping the team up, you know, in those warm up sessions or whatever. Um, it it's one of those things that. Uh, I suppose I never really looked out for it to like pinpoint it, but I will say that I I I, I really th- still think to this day that the most underrated trait that Ronaldo had was was that what you just spoke of is the ability to lift the team. His body language was incredible. Um, it it's really hard to find a leader like that. And when your best player is also that instills that kind of belief in you, it changes everything. So, like you know, we ha- we had a lot of discussion on, well, who's the team's leader now, and we talked ourselves into, well, Ramos is very charismatic. He's a leader. He'll always fight to the death with you. But I think that leader and attack is clearly missing. And I think maybe that ties back into our discussion about Bale. Can you build around him? I don't. I don't. I don't, I've never seen that from Bale. That kind of yeah, body language to carry. I think that's attack. fair. Yeah. yeah, he's never been that kind of leader. He's a great player. He's not really that kind of guy who wants to like just stand out and and be vocal. The, o- I, he's the only also, time I ever yeah. see that is for Wales. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just playing for his country, and because he knows the standard just isn't there. But Bale seems to play better when the players around him aren't up to his level, because then he feels like forced. You know, like if I don't do this, then what's going to happen? Because if you watch Bale for Wales, everything we're talking about that Bale doesn't necessarily do consistently from Madrid is there. Like he's so aggressive, he's always driving at defenders whether the space or not. You see him, you know, talking to Ramsey and other players and trying to lift them. It's just with Madrid, yeah. I guess, because there's so many other players that are on his level that Bale just doesn't feel the responsibility to to take on that that role. I mean, especially because Ronaldo was there. Now that he's gone, there's just this void and. I don't know if you can. I don't know if a coach can talk to Bale about it and say, "Hey, man, we need to do this." But it's you know who steps up, right? There's so many guys who could do it. I think when it's just a psychological thing, right? If you see so many people around you who could do it, you think someone else is going to do it, so you decide to not do it, and then no one ends up doing it. Right. Um, okay. So last question is from Mark Rady. He says, "Are we back, or is this just luck?" We talked about this a little bit. I mean, there was a bit of luck involved. Mm-hmm. Um, are we back? Um, let's let's take a break here. Let's adjourn, and then at, at 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 the end of May, let's return, and we'll we'll see whether we're back or not. Um, but in all seriousness, I I don't see too much difference from the performance of some of the players. You know, the, just the general vibe feels pretty similar from the Lopetegui era. Um, and the main difference, right, was Vinicius came out, he made a difference. And there's some tactical things, right? Like, it's Lopetegui's plan, except, you know, there's just a lot less of it. So it, it's just far too early to say. I, I don't know if this game, like, say we go on to win the treble or whatever. I don't know if this game would be the one that would tell you that that's going to happen. I think... I think it's going to be the next three to five games that really answer that question. Yeah. Or maybe it's not, right? Because, say, Solari is not the coach anymore. We get Jardim or whoever. 
And then we have to wait another month or so to really figure it out. So it's not a satisfying response, but that's just the reality is we, we really don't know. We just don't have the sample size. Yeah, we have no idea. Um, so this is where we're going to wrap it up. I guess a few things to plug. If you're not a manager every day, you're missing a bunch of stuff, whether it's um, tactical reviews or keeping tabs and, and giving you updates on our players on loan, like Raul de Tomas, Oscar Rodriguez, Ashraf Hakimi, etc. Um, a lot of good content, a lot of new writers, and uh, just a lot of people doing great work, so please check it out. And Om and I will be releasing our fourth now, School of Real Madrid video, which will be about Solari. So that should be up, I don't know, early early next week, maybe tomorrow, possibly, maybe Tuesday. Something like that. Yeah, we have um, we have a bit of a crisis here with our team, but uh, you know, it's just we're just following we're just following the lead by Real Madrid. If Real Madrid's in a bit of trouble, we're in a bit of trouble. But um, yeah, I think I think tomorrow night or Tuesday morning, you should expect something. You know, I'm like ninety percent sure, um, yeah. but we'll, we'll see. And we'll uh, we'll accompany that with an article and put on Managing Madrid. So and then you can subscribe to the video. Um, okay, that's uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for tuning in. And hala mari. Hala Madrid. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.